Good morning, friends. Hey, if you have your Bible or you use your iPad or your phone, go on and turn to John 10. That's where we're going to be today. And uh, I do invite you to follow along just so you can see that I'm not making anything up as we go on. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, I think that it's actually going to be up on the screen. And it's always really weird whenever I look up and a bigger version of myself is watching me. So, uh, hey, like has already been said, my name is Will Campbell. I am here, obviously, for Freedom Weekend as the, the teaching guy, I guess. Um, I, I really am honored to be with you guys today, and I'm honored to have the pulpit. I know that's a big deal. Uh, we don't just hand out that opportunity flippantly, and so I'm honored to be here uh, I do want to tell you just a little bit about myself, just because I don't trust people that don't know anything about them, and so I want you to trust me because I'm talking about God's Word today. Um, so I'm from Knoxville originally, which by default makes me a Tennessee fan. I've seen a lot of power tees. Yeah, we, we've been a very apathetic fan base for a while now, but we're excited because we didn't have a losing season in football. But uh, from Knoxville originally, uh, I live in Chattanooga now, and I've been there now for 11 years. Uh, I am married to a woman named Taylor Campbell, and she's amazing. I'm not going to put up her picture again tonight, today, um, but she's great. I love her. Uh, we do not have any kids yet. We have two dogs, um, Ben and Jen Campbell. That has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, when we first got married, Taylor would come to me every few months and say, hey, I think it's time to have kids, and I'd get a dog, and then that, that conversation would die down for at least a year or two. But um Right now, I serve at Brainerd Baptist, and right now I have two roles. I am the college pastor, uh, and we have a number of different colleges that kind of work out in our church and, and come and hang out with this. And then I'm also the future downtown campus pastor. We're also a church that's committed to planting campuses, as well as committed to live preaching and pastors that are going to be serving in a neighborhood context. And so one of my roles right now is real, the college role, and then one is to come. It's kind of imaginary at this point, but... I think that it's going to happen. So uh, as many of you guys know, this weekend is called Freedom Weekend. And the title of this weekend really doesn't leave much mystery to what the overall theme is. But as we considered the idea of freedom this weekend, we're not just talking about a generic form of freedom. The reality for all of us sitting in this room today is that we are living in a culture and a country that really overemphasizes this idea of freedom. And if we're not careful, the culture around us, the country that we're even from, can really define what freedom means and what it is and what it looks like to practice freedom rather than the teachings in the way of Jesus. And so our goal this weekend is not just to throw the idea of freedom around carelessly or flippantly. Our idea and our hope this weekend is to figure out what it looks like for us to embrace a biblical definition and a biblical practice of freedom. And practice is really key here. So we've done that this weekend so far by walking through bits and pieces of John 8 through John 10. Originally, um, I was going to walk you guys through everything that we've taught, but Justin has given me a 30-minute time frame that he hits every single week, I've been told. Like he does it every week. And so I know that that's what you guys are used to. And so I'm long-winded. And I just kind of thought through in my progression as well that like you guys would forget it by lunch anyway. So what you just need to know is walking through John 8 through 10, there's a framework of freedom. And I say framework because one of the things that we've purposed to do this weekend is not just sell your students the fruits of freedom. 
Like if all we do is talk about this is what you get in Jesus, this is what that looks like, here's the joy that can be found in the freedom of Christ, we're doing a disservice. And we're doing a disservice because if we're not teaching students, if we're not teaching our congregation how to get to that freedom, it really doesn't matter what the fruits are. And so this past weekend, what we've been doing is building somewhat of a framework. And you can look through John 8 through 10, and you can see what we're talking about. But as we close out Freedom Weekend, we're going to be closing it out in John 10 today. And so John 10 is a passage that many of you guys in this room are familiar with. Uh, It's the passage where Jesus asserts himself as the good shepherd. I grew up and my grandparents had a quilt um, that was made and actually had quite a few different things in the house that had the Good Shepherd verse or imagery from this passage on it. They had quilts, they had pictures, and now a lot of my friends, um, a lot of guys who are in ministry have it tattooed on them somewhere. And so it's kind of odd to me that like what one generation, you know, quilts into a blanket, other generations put on their bodies, But, but that's it's an iconic passage for us as believers, one that most of you are going to be familiar with. But here's the thing about today. Um, much to my dismay, God did not write the Bible in preparation for Freedom Weekend. And so whenever I come into a text like this and a weekend like this, one of my biggest temptations is to proof text the text and make it fit perfectly within the weekend's theme. My second probably biggest temptation is to alliterate all of the points and have them all start with freedom. And here's the thing, as helpful as that might be, just convictionally, I can't do that. And the reason I can't do that is because what we gather around is the word of God. And what ultimately is going to save, redeem, or bring freedom and healing to individuals in this room is the word of God. So that's what we're going to prioritize today. So this morning, let's walk through this passage See what Jesus says, and along the way, we'll point out a few different things that practically help us understand the way of Jesus and how the way of Jesus leads us to freedom naturally. So if you're a note taker today, the main point today is this. Jesus is the good shepherd who leads his people to life and freedom. We do this weird thing at my church, and so some of you are going to like this because you grew up in this tradition. Some of you are going to hate it and really hope that I don't come back. So I'm gonna ask you guys to stand up if you're able for the reading of God's word. This is also helpful as we have students who are trying to sleep. All weekend we threw gum at them as they were falling asleep. Not hard, but just because they would begin to chew it and it would keep them awake. Okay, so we're gonna be reading verses one through 13. It should be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. This is what Jesus says starting in verse one in chapter 10 of John. Truly I tell you, Anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in something, some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes out ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they didn't understand what he was telling them. In verse 7, Jesus said again, Truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. 
I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees the wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is the hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. Let's pray. Jesus, our prayer is very simple as we walk through your word today. We pray that you would move and we pray that you would speak because if you do not move and you do not speak, nothing will happen today. We love you. Our hope is in you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so before we get into the points, very quickly, let's walk through some context that's important to understand as we have kind of like one little sermon in John. I know you guys just came out of a vision series, and then you're about to do some pretty cool things in the last days of Jesus. That's not end times, I don't think. I think it's like the last days leading up to Easter. Um, But anyways, context. So the Gospel of John is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, gospel accounts. And one of the things that makes the Gospel of John unique is how expensive explicitly the themes are in it and how the themes drive the text forward. Two of the major themes that drive this gospel forward is number one, Jesus' signs and miracles. In a lot of the headings in your Bibles, you'll see signs as the headings. And whenever Jesus performs a miracle, the other theme is Jesus' I am statements. Whenever I say Jesus' signs or miracles, I'm talking about the miracles that explicitly point to Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, okay? Whenever I say the I am statements, what I'm talking about is Jesus giving clarity to the I am statement that God gives Moses in Exodus 3. If you're familiar with the Exodus story, Moses had wandered away from his people because he had committed a sin of killing someone. Uh, He is confronted by this burning bush who is God. The burning bush, God calls Moses to go back and free his people out of oppression in the land of Egypt. And he says to the burning bush, which is weird, he's talking to a bush. He says, who do I tell them sent me? And the bush says, you tell them that I am sent you. And so catch this, this is Jesus many generations later, giving clarity to the I am. Both of these themes that we're talking about are important to catch because together they form the rhythm of chapters two through 10 in the book of John. Or yeah, in the book of John. And and here's that rhythm, okay? Jesus will perform a miracle or he will make an I am statement or he'll do both. And the characters in the story have to make a decision on who they believe Jesus to be. That's the rhythm. Point number one today is this. Sheep listen to the voice of their shepherd. Sheep listen to the voice of their shepherd. So in this passage that we're in today, Jesus is using an analogy or a metaphor, and he typically does that in his teaching. But in this particular metaphor, he's using the dynamic between sheep and their shepherd. In this analogy, Jesus presents himself as the shepherd and presents us as sheep. You've probably heard this before, so this is not going to be new information, but there are not many redeeming qualities of sheep, right? If you're kind of looking at uh, a sheep's Enneagram, not Enneagram, I guess it'd be like an anagram at that point, if you know what the Enneagram is. But if you're looking at the qualities of a sheep, sheep are typically known as being smelly, dirty, defenseless, and also incredibly unintelligent. And this, out of the entire animal kingdom, is what Jesus says we relate with the most. I mean, that's what he says. 
And so like, um, there's this thing on Instagram right now, if I'm not mistaken, where like you hold up, actually I saw Jimbo, you did this a few days ago. Why I know this and remember this, I don't know. But it's this thing where you hold up your face and it like tells you what you are. So they have like, what Marvel character are you? Or what's your year of 2020 gonna be like? So like, if we all held that thing up and it was like, what animal are you? Regardless of what it said, you're a sheep, right? Every single time, if what Jesus is saying is true, which it is, because it's Jesus, you're a sheep. Not many redeeming qualities. So I wanna read these first five verses again, because we need to catch what Jesus is saying. He's saying, truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter by the sheep pen, by the gate, but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters in by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. And you can catch this. The gatekeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all of his own outside, he goes out ahead of them. And catch this, the sheep follow him because they know his voice. The gist of Jesus' point here is this, everyone listens to the voice of the one they follow. Everyone listens to the voice of the one they follow. And here's the thing that's true about every single one of us in this room. We all follow someone or something that's outside of ourselves. All of us do. It doesn't matter how independent you are. It doesn't matter how accomplished you are. It doesn't matter what Enneagram number you are. We all follow someone or something outside of ourselves. And here's the thing. Our actions reveal what that something is. And it's important to consider that because the invitation of Jesus is not just to believe intellectually that he existed. The invitation of Jesus is also not just to confess our brokenness. The invitation of Jesus, if you're looking biblically, is to die to yourself and to follow him. That's the invitation of Jesus. And that statement and that invitation is not nearly as ambiguous as we often like to make it. Practically, following Jesus looks like you and I practically being obedient to him, doing what he says. In this metaphor, sheep listen to the voice of the one they follow. So if you are a sheep of Jesus, you listen to his voice. Practically, you obey his word. And on the other end of that, if Jesus is a stranger, as he says in verse five, if he's a stranger, AKA, you don't know Jesus, you don't listen to his voice. You don't obey him. It's that simple. And it's that simple because if you look at the teachings of Jesus, what you'll find is this. There is no category anywhere in scripture for, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, but I don't do what he says. There's no category for that. And there's no category for that because it's impossible to be consistently following Jesus and not consistently growing in his likeness. And if you think that that's possible, I mean, think about rationally what that means. If we believe that we can follow Jesus, begin a relationship with Jesus, and consistently over the long haul, our life be patterned by walking in darkness, walking in sin, what we're essentially saying is that we've inherited the same spirit of God that spoke earth into creation, that rose Jesus from the dead, and we've remained unchanged. That's ludicrous, right? It's crazy. So here are my practical questions that kind of follow up that point. Do you obey the teachings of Jesus? Do you listen to his voice? And maybe this is a better question because this is a more practical question because that's kind of ambiguous. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus in this room, I want you to think back to the moment that that happened or that journey started. Here's my question. 
do you look any different than you did when you began this journey? Do you look any more like the shepherd, any more like Jesus? Now, that's kind of the challenging part of that point. And I want to talk about the freedom that's laced within it. I said at the beginning that freedom is not the main point of this text, but it's absolutely present. So just a moment ago, I said that all of us follow someone or something. And that's probably giving all of us a little too much credit. The reality for most of us is that we follow hundreds of voices and hundreds of opinions. Voices in our family, voices at work, voices on social media, voices at church, and then political voices. I mean, like fall 2020 is right around the corner. And a lot of us are manipulated on both sides of the spectrum by what we hear in media, right? Can we just agree across the board? You can either nod or just look at me, you know, with a blank stare. I'll just take that as a yes. But can we just agree that it is so incredibly taxing being ruled and governed by that many voices? Can we just agree that it is so taxing having to jump through all those different types of hoops? You see, Jesus offers us freedom simply because there is freedom in following one voice rather than hundreds. While many of us struggle to filter through all the voices that vie for our attention and jump through all the necessary hoops, Jesus looks at us here in this passage and says, no, 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 you listen to my voice. Don't worry about the other voices. He says, obey me, follow me, seek first my kingdom. Don't worry about the others. Some of us in this room are racked by anxiety. Some of us live in that day in and day out. That's our rhythm, right? And a lot of that has to do with the anxiety of trying to appease the different voices and follow different shepherds. And Jesus in this passage demands that we follow him alone. And that offers peace through that exclusivity. Point number two, Jesus is the gate for his sheep. Jesus is the gate for his sheep. So in verses seven through eight, we see one of these I am statements that I told you is a major theme in the book of John. And Jesus says, I am the gate for the sheep. When Jesus says that he's the gate to the sheep, uh, he points to his exclusivity as a means by which we enter into life. In verse eight, he also says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. And what he does there is he disqualifies any imitators or false shepherds that promise to lead his sheep to life, but only lead them to death. Most of us in this room, especially those of us who grew up in this type of context, you came to church when you were growing up, you were born in the church, not literally. I mean, some of you might've been born in the church literally, but um, you've been here, right? For many of us in this room who've grown up in this context, we're, we're very familiar with the exclusivity of Jesus as Lord and as Savior, as God. But here's the thing. We can often hear texts like this, and we can often hear Jesus say that he alone is the gate, that he alone is how we experience life, and our minds naturally go to other belief factions. And here's what I mean by that. We're quick to point out that Jesus is the means of salvation over Buddha or Muhammad or any other belief factions, any other major world religions. And I could be totally wrong here. Like, I may eat these words here in a minute. But I would bet that the vast majority of you in this room have never been affiliated with any other prominent religions. And even if you have, even if you have, you probably do not see those other world religions as the primary rival to Jesus in your heart and in your obedience now. For the majority of you, 
That's what you don't struggle with. You don't struggle wrestling with whether or not Jesus is the one true God. However, I do think that there are some cultural false gods that many of us serve because we implicitly believe they'll lead us to life. And so when Jesus says that he alone leads us to life, that practically lands on us like this. Because Jesus leads to life, consumerism will not lead us to life. You buying things just to distract you will not lead to life. Because Jesus alone leads to life, the perfect job is not gonna lead you to life. Because Jesus alone leads to life, the perfect spouse will not lead you to life. Some of you who are engaged in this room right now, you're really excited about your marriage and that's a beautiful thing and it's gonna be amazing and God's gonna honor it, but it's not gonna be what you think it's gonna be. It's just not. Because Jesus alone leads to life, neither political party will lead to life. Because Jesus alone leads to life, religion even will not lead to life. Just playing church will not lead to life. Friends, Jesus says that he is the gate and that he alone leads to life and pasture. That's what he says. He doesn't just call it life. He says, and lead them to pasture. Think about what pasture means within this analogy. Pasture represents more than just a physical or emotional state for the sheep. It represents the environment that sheep were created to thrive in. It represents the ideal pasture, what they were created for. We see that idea pointed to again in the next verse. And this is a verse that many of you guys in this room are super familiar with. In John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. Remember, everyone has a shepherd that they follow. And one of the things that Jesus is pointing to in that statement is that if you follow any shepherd other than Jesus, ultimately that shepherd, regardless of what it is, will ultimately steal your joy, lead to death and destroy your hope. Ultimately, that's where all other shepherds lead even good shepherds, right? But Jesus, who is the good shepherd, leads us not just to life, but abundant life. The life that you and I were created for, the ideal pasture. And I wanna point out what that looks like. And when we see what this looks like, it drastically redefines how we see freedom, especially in the culture that we're in. When Jesus says that he's the gate, that implies two primary things. It implies protection and it implies restriction, okay? So when we enter into Jesus's gate as his sheep, we are in turn accepting his protection, which we all like, but we're also submitting to his lordship. Whenever we talk to students, we talk a lot about Jesus being both Lord and savior of your life, right? And one of the things that we cannot miss is that in order for Jesus to be savior, he has to be Lord. He has to be. And so when we talk about this ideal pasture, as we talk about going into the gate that Jesus offers us, we're talking both about protection that he offers us as well as the restrictions that he demands of us. So culturally, when we talk about the abundant life, it's typically a life that's marked by financial means and a lack of restrictions. And that's also how we culturally define freedom, I would say. But biblically, that definition of freedom doesn't fly. Biblically, true freedom is not the abundance of freedom, but it's limited freedom. It's freedom that is structured by something outside of yourself. It's what we call a paradox. And if you look through Jesus' teachings, Jesus' teachings are full of paradoxes. Things that he say, says that really don't make that much sense. Like in order to live, you have to die. 
In order to be truly free, you have to actually give up your freedom. So in the language that Jesus uses in this passage, I would just submit to you today that the abundant life is not found in abundant freedom. The abundant life is found in limited freedom. And practically, here's how I think that makes sense. I listen to a lot of podcasts because that's what gives you, um, I guess, like accreditation with pastors now. Like whenever you walk into a room or you go to a um, Starbucks or something and you run into somebody, the question they ask you typically is what podcast are you listening to? And if you don't have anything, you're worthless and meaningless at that point. And so um, I was listening to something a a few years ago and uh, a guy used an analogy. And this is something that most sociologists agree on. And this is just fascinating to me. Uh, Many sociologists, even secular sociologists agree that every single person operates out of three main reservoirs. Three main reservoirs. Those three main reservoirs are this, freedom, meaning, and belonging. Essentially, in order for an individual to have somewhat of a healthy mental and emotional state, they have to have all three of those things present. Freedom, meaning, and belonging. But here's the issue. We are living in a culture that overemphasizes one of those. And what is it? It's freedom, right? And not only are we overemphasizing freedom, but because we think about this more in a reservoir system and you only have so much to put in those reservoirs, when we overemphasize freedom, it comes at the expense of our meaning and our belonging. And so here's what that looks like. A lot of our students are growing up, not just our students, everyone in this room is learning to operate in a culture that promises them this odd kind of weird free stance of do whatever you want to do, seek your truth, find your truth, be who you want to be, but it can't deliver any type of meaning or any type of belonging. So like just a a personal example, a lot of the meaning and belonging that I have in my life outside of my relationship with Jesus, this is not all my belonging, this is just a part of it, but a lot of it is kind of bound up in my relationship with my wife, right? Um, She's not my entire source of belonging or meaning. That would be unhealthy. But a lot of it is wound up in my wife and my relationship with her, right? In order to be able to have that relationship with my wife and to experience belonging and meaning in that relationship, I have to limit my freedom. Four years ago, I made a vow to my wife that... No longer was I going to be able just to make plans on the fly all the time, right? I couldn't do whatever I wanted to. I couldn't just make life plans without my wife. In a crass language, I can't sleep with whoever I want because I'm married to my wife. And I want you to hear me say this. That's not obligatory. I choose that because it's better. Because of the way that God has infused meaning and belonging in healthy ways because of my wife. And here's the thing that I would bet. In order for you and I to have meaning and belonging, we have to limit our freedom. If that's true, there's many of us in this room who have all types of freedom and we exercise it. But there's many of us in this room who don't know what it feels like to have true meaning and true belonging. Because the reality is, is in order for us to experience true meaning and belonging, it's going to require the freedom that we desire. It's going to require the freedom that we hold really tightly to. Here in John 10, as Jesus asserts himself as the gate, he's pointing to his exclusivity. He's redefining true freedom, and he's offering us meaning, belonging, and life abundant. 
Point number three, and this is the shortest one. Jesus is the good shepherd that lays down his life for his sheep. So going back to something I said in point one, I think this is actually probably the thing that I've said the most. Um, we all follow someone or something. Essentially, we all have a shepherd. And it's not a matter of whether or not we follow someone. It's just a matter of who we follow. And so when Jesus makes this statement in verse uh, 11 that he is the good shepherd, I want you to notice his strategy in this. Notice how he doesn't say, I am the only shepherd. Notice how Jesus doesn't say, I am one of many shepherds. I mean, what that means is this, there are plenty of other shepherds out there that will lead you if you allow them to. And Jesus in this passage calls those types of shepherds the hired hand. Those who would rather than protecting the sheep will run away whenever adversity comes, whenever the wolf, as he says, comes. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. This statement, what it does is condemns all other shepherds as liars and posers and presents Jesus as the only shepherd that leads to abundant life and freedom. And here's the thing, Jesus is not all talking this, right? He's not just saying these things. Jesus has actions in truth that actually backs this statement up. Unlike false shepherds who make empty promises and inevitably run away whenever adversity comes, Jesus is able to back his statement up here with evidence. The action and the evidence is found in Jesus' description of what a good shepherd does. If you look in the text, Jesus says, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So don't miss this. What Jesus is pointing here to is the gospel. I mean, if all of scripture points to the gospel, this is kind of that point in his message to his disciples where it's kind of like clicking for them without them really knowing what he's about to do for them. He's saying, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd, in fact, did lay his life down for his sheep. He did it on the cross. You guys know the story. And three days later, he crushed the head of Satan, which is our wolf, right? And forever and ever destroyed sin's, sin's ability to condemn and have power over us, to, to take away our freedom. That's what he did. What we see in this passage over and over again is that because Jesus did that, because Jesus made the gospel true with his sacrifice on the cross, he alone is the good shepherd and he alone can lead us to life and freedom. As we close today, um, I told you that the two primary themes of the book of John create this rhythm of chapters two through 10. And it's this rhythm where Jesus will make an I am statement, which we saw two of those in this passage, or he'll perform a miracle or a sign that validates him as the promised Messiah. And the rhythm is this, once Jesus does one or both of those things, the characters in the story are confronted with a decision. They're confronted with this decision of, who is this guy, Jesus? Who is he? Friends, nothing's changed. The same question, the same conflict is present in this room today. As we're confronted with two of Jesus' I am statements, as we're confronted with the word of God, the question that matters today, not just as a church that we answer this corporately, but individually, how do you answer that question? Who is Jesus? Who do we claim that he is? Is he just a shepherd? Is he one of many? Is he someone that we follow in convenience and kind of go in and out of following him? 
or is he the good shepherd? Is he the one that we've placed our hope in our future and our confidence for our future in? If you are a believer today in the room, um, the invitation is simple. And one of the things that I've had to learn over the long haul is that every single time that the word of God is taught, preached, and displayed, it requires a response on our end. And so if you're a believer in the room today, I would challenge you, I would invite you to confess. We all have areas of our life, we all have pieces of our life that show where we've been walking in disobedience to the call of the shepherd. We all have areas of our life that God is knitting us back to himself, right? Confess, repent, and then because we know Christ, celebrate. The gospel is a means of celebration because we once only knew death and false shepherds and now we know the good shepherd and have life through him. If you're someone in this room who does not know Jesus and you're confronted with that reality because as you look at the two comparisons here and you're sitting there going, I don't obey Jesus at all. That's not a rhythm of my life. And if you're kind of like transitioning and figuring out where do I stand on that? Um, if you get to the end of that and figure out I don't follow Jesus, my invitation is Romans 10, 9 confess and believe, confess that you need Jesus, confess that you're broken, confess that you need a savior, and then not just believe that he existed intellectually, believe that what he did on the cross for you was enough. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we love you. You are good. God, we're thankful for your word and we're thankful for the ways that it challenges us, but also leads us into true freedom. God, we pray that you would use your word, that you would use your church and your community to continue to establish who you are in this city. God, I pray that if we are confronted with the reality that we don't know you, or if we're confronted with the fact that God, you are not our shepherd, God, I pray that you would make that abundantly clear to us this morning and that we would respond in faith by confessing and believing that you are who you say you are. But God, I also pray for the believer in this room today. God, I pray that they would be willing to repent be willing to turn back to the good shepherd and listen to his voice. God, we love you, we need you, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.